Oh my god, I just talked to Christian Finnegan from the Audio Speckle podcast, and he's going to be on our live show January 11th, 4 p.m. New York City, part of the NYC Podfest. Go to nycpodfest.com, see Christian Finnegan and Lloyd Kaufman, the director of great movies like Class of Newcomb High. Surf Nazis Must Die, and of course, Toxic Avenger. He's going to do some crazy promotional stunt for his Return to Newcomb High movie. So come check it out, nycpodfest.com. You are listening to Proudly Resents. Oh, reason. I, I can't even hear you. Hi, this is Sammy Wazell, uh, Proudly Resents. The Cult Movie Podcast. The Adam's Biggest Men Show. To all you proudly resent listeners out there, just remember, you can't touch on hospitality. I want Are we there? We there. We're there. We're there. There, 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 there. Proudly Resents, ProudlyResents.com. Here with Shadow Stevens. We're going to talk about one of the... This movie, this show is about cult films, and I think Tracks, your film, is just up there in the top five best, you know, cult films, because well, it, it has all the elements. Let me give you one of the rare DVDs. Whoa. Not available for sale. <laughs> not available anywhere. HBO no? made it for me. They were they were thinking about putting it out as a, um, as a DVD. Uh-huh. And did the research on it and realized that they're probably not going to make a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of? Re- no one called me. What was the research? Just uh, I have no idea. You know, they just you know they they look into it and see. Oh yeah, it's a little cult thing. So had, yeah, it was, uh, it's been a lot of cult festivals and a lot of in looking up. There's a lot of every cult po- you know website whatever writes about it. But uh, how did it come about? This movie. Um, well, at the time, I was um, really successful doing a um, television um, campaign for a company called Federated. And the um, the commercials I created were Fred rated for Federated, so mm-hmm. to make people remember the name Federated. And they were real funny. They were like a Monty Python skits. And we did 1,100 of them. Yeah, they were like a different one every week or two We weeks. did, no, we did like five or six or seven a week. Wow. For six years, we did... Um, and no commercial ever ran longer than 10 days. And it was so successful that people would stand in line to meet Fred like two, two or three hours. Uh, out the door into, from new stores, down the street. Uh-huh. And it was baffling. Um, Why do you think it, it took was, off? It, they were, it was, I called it bludgeon advertising. It was, you know, really crazy things. Mm-hmm. It started with... Basically, the idea of it was uh, doing a Dan Aykroyd bassomatic pitchman, a parody of a pitchman mm-hmm. that um, talked fast and was tongue in cheek. And at the end, he said, "And Federated smashes prices." And then I would take a circus hammer and smash a television. Mm-hmm. When I did it, I, I had the idea of it. The president of the company said, "Sounds pretty good. Let's try that." I said, if we try it and it works, will you give me creative control because I never want to do the same thing twice. People want to kill me. If I did smash a television every week for five years, you know, uh-huh. people would want to smash me. So the idea was that we would never repeat ourselves and we'd do like different versions. So 
in the weeks to come, a, the business went up in one weekend, went up 500%. It was the subject of a two-page spread in Time magazine. It was so successful. It was one of the biggest at regional advertising campaigns in It was history. here in California. It was on the West Coast. It was uh -huh. California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, and Oklahoma. And they went from 14 little stores to 78 superstores in five states in four years. So on the heat of that, you know, I thought, well, this is a chance for me to do some acting. And I had a terrific agent at the time, and along came Gary DeVore. Now, Gary DeVore had had a couple of hit movies. He was a pretty good writer and producer, and he had this idea for a, um, a comedy, and he had a deal with Dino De Laurentiis, and, and he uh, signed me, De Laurentiis uh, signed me to do a three-picture deal. And, it w and the first one was Tracks. And the script was hilarious. It was laugh out loud. It was a mercenary who is tired of the mercenary business and just wants to be the next famous Amos. Mm -hmm. He's going to bake cookies, but he's terrible. You know, he comes up with awful ideas like sushi cookies and, and puppy swirls, little <laughs> cookies that look like puppy droppings. And, just, and he thought they were good ideas, but he goes through all of his money and, and then he has to make more money so a local town ironically, is overrun by crime and the mafia. And he's hired as a town tamer. He's mm -hmm. going to go Clint Eastwood it. Right. And it's real dark and it's real over the top. But So I'm signed to do this. And De Laurentiis, pretty famous guy, you know, world famous Dino De Laurentiis, who'd made huge movies. And crazy movies. He made took crazy chances. He took crazy chances. You know, he made... Um, Godzilla mm -hmm. and you know King Kong King Kong and you know a whole bunch of like over the top dramatic a, a lot of different kinds of movies and he owned a, the movie studio in Wilmington mm -hmm. a pretty sophisticated studio uh-huh and it was all one big set of yeah, yeah it was it, pretty big sets you know the town the town set was pretty elaborate spent a bunch of money on it even though it was money went in from one pocket to another you know Is that what it was, was well it was, it was his, his studio yeah, yeah, yeah. so he had his budget and it was a 15 million dollar budget but it was paying paid to his own studio so 14 million to a studio yeah probably <laughs> yeah so he hires me and I am ready, and I fly into Wilmington, and, he, and De Laurentiis thinks this is going to be the next Crocodile Dundee, because I'm coming hot off this commercial campaign. It was at kind of at the peak of my, of my uh, life at that moment, and everybody was optimistic. So I get to Wilmington, and I go out onto the set the first day, and it's a $15 million movie, and I see they're shooting the end of the film, which was completely changed from the script that I read. Now, the end of the film was the town like kind of like in chaos, and it's in the town square, and there are three, and this isn't, didn't end up in the movie that you saw, there are three identical electric chairs, and the three bad guys were in nighties, like, like the kind that, that babies have, with, like footies. with footies. Uh -huh. They were red, white, and blue. And now they're in these three electric chairs. They're going to be executed in the town square. Mm-hmm. And I was horrified. This is so stupid. Uh, and I went to Gary and said, you got to explain this to me. I mean, I've come off this television campaign, really funny commercials. I've got a really good sense of humor. Why is this funny? <laughs> oh, God. Trust me. you got to trust me. on this. This, this, this. People are going to love this. This is so funny. And I wrote in my journal that night, we're doomed. Because I knew that it was out of control. What he was doing was he was drinking every day. Mm-hmm. 
and he'd hired a first-time director, a really nice guy named Jerome Gary, who'd never done a feature film before except a little documentary. I think Gary hired him because he figured he could control him and get exactly what he wanted. So there's no sense of timing or, or focus or energy or, or anything. And meanwhile, Gary was drinking every night and rewriting, coming up with these wild new ideas. It's over the top. Because there's one part where his kids are tied up and you save them by shooting the rope. I mean, yeah. was there any discussion of you shooting at kids? No. No. No, it was just funny. Uh-huh. It, was the, it funny? The one thing, well, the one thing about Gary is that he was kind of fearless in his madness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, jokes like um, running over someone on the street and then backing up over him again. And we thump, 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 thump. And, well, thump, thump, and, and doing it three times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that he was kind of right on. Yeah, yeah. It's just the, it, it's, it's not even so, ma- some of the ideas are really stupid. The guy with the arrow through his head, you know, that is, mm-hmm. is just hurts my brain to watch even to this day. <laughs> some of the ideas are really funny. And some of them were ad-libbed. Like, and one of, and one of my favorites is when he goes into the bar and makes everybody leave and says, uh, good night, drive carefully, come back again, and I'll kill you. Good night. Good night. Good to see you. You know, come back again, and you're dead. And that was all like improvisational stuff because we needed something to get him out of there. Gary, interestingly enough, ended up dying in his car. He, um, Trax was so uh, disappointing to him that it completely fell apart, his vision, and, and he really thought this was going to be huge. Wow. And he went on a year long uh, bender and drove around the country drinking. Mm -hmm. Just driving from town to town, drinking and thinking about it and trying to figure out what he's gonna do next. Wow. And um, a few years later, they found, he disappeared, and they found him uh, dead in his car by an overpass somewhere, um, I think by Santa Barbara or someplace. But nobody ever figured out exactly what happened, if he went into convulsions or what, what happened. It didn't appear that he took his own life, but but drinking did him in. So, and that was, you think it's, he was drinking anyway, but do you think it's because of the film? Because a lot of the, you were saying that Dino Lorenzis went out of business. They had yeah, a, yeah, well, they kind of took, um, they took it away from him, too. He, uh, he went in there and he was taking all the footage and was trying to edit it together into being the miracle that it would become. And they hated it. Mm-hmm. And then he would try again, and, and then pretty soon they took it away from him and gave it to somebody else to edit. And then they sold it to HBO, who slapped the $1,500 um, music track on it. I'm sure that he worked on that all of an afternoon. And <laughs> While he's you know, watching I mean, the you've movie? You've heard it. I mean, it's just yeah. the, it, it's not possible to, to have a better, a, a worse uh, soundtrack. It's just stupid. It was like he made it up as going along. He did one uh, pass. Almost. Uh, what about Famous Amos is in the movie? Yeah. But you don't call him that. You call him Famous. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if there was a problem with that or not. Okay. But he was iconic, you know, so it didn't matter. Right, you didn't really need to say it. Right. But I knew there was a confusion that he sold his name, so he couldn't really use his name anymore in real life. There could be. There could be, but I don't know the background of that. How much were you able to change of that film? Well, I I tried to, to, you know, I I was coming off of six years of having total control. Right, you're the boss and talent. and And, And all of our commercials were funny, some really funny. Mm-hmm. And I, um, in fact, if you want to see them, I we did a sh- um, a movie a couple of years back, a semi-documentary called "Laugh Now, Think Later." 
Mm-hmm. It's on YouTube, and it is the whole chronicle of, you know, a little bit about my career, but then the whole thing of Federated coming to life and who the different people were and what happened uh, in the first half of it, um, and I became a knockdown, uh, hope to die drug addict during that period of time, and ended up going into rehab and then getting a new lease on life and coming back and then picking up in the next half of the commercials for the next um, three or four years were a lot better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wait, you're saying drugs and alcohol didn't help, wasn't better? Uh, <laughs> no, although, although there were some pretty funny ideas, but as I got, you know, I instead of losing weight with large amounts of, of cocaine and crystal meth, I gained 50 pounds. Uh-huh. So I, you know, was looked like a kind of linebacker, and people would say, well, you're big boned. No, no I'm not. No. <laughs> Help me. <laughs> I'm eating fat burgers and pizzas and drinking beer. <laughs> right, right. So I, uh, so I got sober, and then I lost 50 pounds, and all my life changed and got really good. Um, I come back to L.A., and I, and I go, this needs to be edited right. Now, at the time, I had my own studio with my own staff and protect production facilities. I went to him and I said, just give me the footage because I know there's some pretty funny stuff in here. If I give it the right rhythm, if I make it, it has the right soundtrack and the right sweetening and everything, I think we can make this into something. And he goes, oh, we can't do that. Why? No, it it's just isn't done. So I see what they cut together. And I'm horrified. Well, why do you think they wouldn't give it to you? Because you, you did it for free. You were gonna do it I was going to do it for free. I said, I'll just take a pass at it. Well, they would thought that would cost extra money to give me extra footage. You know, uh-huh. Or they would have to... Reshoot? They wouldn't have to reshoot. They would just have to make another copy uh-huh. that they would give to me. <laughs> and little did I know, at that very moment, they were going bankrupt. So that company, De Laurentiis Entertainment, was in the middle of bankruptcy. And um, it didn't help that tracks was looking questionable and they'd also done a movie with uh jay leno that wasn't looking like it was going to be a jay leno it was the critical it was pat uh marita right is that it the cop film they were both two cops and jay leno played a cop right and that didn't work so right so there was nothing i could do Uh and i when i i watched it my heart sank because i thought this is so cheesy The, the music track they've added is just the worst it couldn't be, possibly be worse right they they left in the production sound the guns went <laughs> 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 and i was like come on i work so hard and it was such a disappointment when hbo bought it did they put it out anywhere besides on video no they just put it on uh well they put it on video yeah and they, they had it on hbo for a while uh-huh and what kind of responses did you get from people who saw it um none None. No response? No. And it was fine with me. I, I was, um, you know, it, I didn't ever get an appreciation for it until a couple of years ago. Um, these guys, I don't know if I told you this, but new friends in Portland, Oregon, these, this artist group, does a thing called B-Movie Bingo. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to do one on tracks and have me come up and talk about it. So it's a fabulous idea. I think everyone should do that B-Movie Bingo. They take a um, a B movie, action movie, could be a martial arts movie or like a tracks, a cop movie, and they all have the same kinds of action sequences. You know, hero gets chewed out by boss, 
hero, you know, throws someone out a second story window, explosion on the floor of the, you know, office place. So what they do in B movie bingo is they hand out cards when people walk into the theater. And while the movie's on, the guys are sitting at a little table in front by the screen and at a microphone, and they'll go, Hero gets chewed out by boss. And everybody's looking down at their cards <laughs> and, and marking it. And then at some point, somebody will raise their hand and go, Bingo! They stop the film. They goes and walks down, yeah, and Hero gets chewed out by boss, explosion on the second floor, fight, and there's, yeah, that's a bingo. And here's your prize. Then they start the movie again. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> And I'm telling you, it, it, watching it in that context and hearing people really laugh at some of this really stupid stuff gave me a different appreciation for it. And I actually had a good time. I thought it was pretty funny. Was that the first time you'd seen it in a while? When, when oh, yeah, in 10, 10 years or more. So it was more like you just forgot about it. it I forgot about it. And my, my, I, my nephew counts it as one of his favorite films of all time. I can't account for that. But he thinks it's really funny. It's so violent, so over the top. Definitely in an audience, it just kind of gets shocked at a lot of it. Like, what? Yeah. yeah like, he kills all these people and hangs them from, uh, from, <laughs> from telephone poles up and down Main Street, and they're all dead. Yeah, it didn't make any sense. Yeah. It was a cartoon with you starring in, as Bugs Bunny. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, garbage you dump, trash you kill. Said with great conviction. <laughs> <laughs> your first time listening to the show and if you want to hear more reviews they will come up in the future but we also have a ton from the past you can hear episodes from eric drysdale from the colbert report talking about the apple with jimmy Dore. we'll have an interview with lloyd kaufman coming up soon and you can hear check out other interviews we did like with bobcat goldthwaite guys from the room like tommy wiseau and the guy who claims he really directed the room which is a pretty amazing interview if i must say you can find those all at our website or on the old iTunes. While you are at iTunes, say something nice. All right, so uh, the first half was all about tracks. The second half, we're going to learn about him being a, a DJ. So enjoy that. It's interesting showbiz stuff. So thank you, uh, Shadow, for doing the show. That was awesome. So I went back, but at that at that very moment when I came back from tracks. Um, I had also been doing Hollywood Squares. Now, Hollywood Squares was um, also originally because um, the guy who first put, him, put me on television was named Rick Rosner. And Rick had put me on a show in Boston when I was there called Tempo Boston. And then he produced my first television show called Gazebo. And then when I moved to L.A., he put me on as Steve Allen's sidekick and announcer. And so that was kind of a big deal. And that was nationally syndicated. So some years later, he said, I'm going to bring back Hollywood Squares. Would you be the announcer? And I said, I don't want to be an announcer. I've got a shot here at acting. <laughs> I want to take my shot. You know, I want to be known as the announcer. And he goes, well, do, will you do it just the pilot for me? I went, okay. So I did the pilot, and it was the biggest hit of the year. It was the, the, the top seller of the year. And he said, we want you to be on the show. And I went, no. So I turned him down three times. And he finally said, I... How about if we put you in a square and you can talk about your movie coming out and, and the other things that you're doing? And went, okay, fair enough. Like once a month I would be on. And so I had before I went off to do tracks, I had done these shows and been on camera and talked about it. And it got a lot of attention. So tracks ended. It was a huge disappointment. But at that very moment, 
Rick Rosner said, we want to make you a permanent square. We want to put you on the show regularly. And it just took off like a rocket. You know, it was the number one show the, in the country. Yeah. And so my life got real busy. And then on the heels of that came American Top 40. And that was, uh, you know, Casey Kasem's show. Uh, they uh, offered me the job because of the success of Hollywood Squares. And so I, ha- I got real busy. And then that became the biggest radio show in the world that was on 110 countries. And, um, and so for many years, I was really busy. And then Dave's World came along. I did a lot of different things. Yeah, Loose Cannon, you did your own show for a minute. Loose Cannon, yeah. Loose Cannon was another uh, sad disappointment with really great moments. This is before Dave's World. I, had, uh, I was signed by Universal to a holding deal while they developed something for me. They said, what would you like to do? I said, I'd really like to do a kind of funny version of Miami Vice, you know, like a cop, um, something, you know, that, that is uh, got style and, and attitude, but a lot of humor. And they, um, and, I, and, they, and they put me together with Fred Silverman, the biggest producer probably in history, ran all three networks and made them all number one at different periods of time. And he put together this team, and they came up with Loose Cannon. Mm-hmm. And Loose Cannon was a really good idea. It was kind of, as, in retrospect, uh, or as it came to be developed, it kind of turned into a kind of television version of um, Lethal Weapon. So we went out, and the scripts were terrific, great ideas. And then while we were shooting, and everybody was really optimistic, this could be a really big hit because it looked good. It had a great opening. It had great parts. Fred Silverman had a heart attack. And he couldn't spearhead this thing into, you know, getting the right kind of promotion, the time period and all that kind of stuff. He was out of it. Well, he had so much power that he can make, right, he can get the right promotion. He can get, he can push him to give him the right time slot. Yeah. People can listen to Fred Silverman. Yeah, pretty much. um, You know, he had created all kinds of of terrific, huge series. And some of the same team was involved in Loose Cannon. Mm -hmm. But now Fred was out. And so we were put on Friday night with almost no promotion. And even the, the, the things I tried to do myself, I tried to do a deal with American Top 40. Here We could promote, cross-promote. It would be phenomenal. It's your show. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, they wouldn't do that. Really? Would, people wouldn't do it. You're the star of the show. I, I don't you know. It's like, it's the, the, the same kind of really perplexing things that have happened to me my whole life. I'll tell you another backstory one. This is really, I think, pretty interesting. I came out to Los Angeles, and I was in my early 20s. I went to work for a radio station, and inexplicably, I was going to art center school studying art at the same time. And they made me program director. I didn't ask for it. They made me program director. Now, I had to figure out what worked. So I created this radio station that shot to number one. It was really successful. They came in one day and said, um, you're going to have to do this, you're going to have to do this. Now, we're number one. Right, why change anything? Yeah, and and demanding that I do this and this kind of stuff, and I I quit. And I I did a drawing of a vision I had in the night, and it was this this guy flying out of the infinity with all these bags under his eyes. And and he was saying, quit, my child. There's no hope. (laughs) So that was my resignation, (laughs) this drawing. And 
and I went back to art center school. Mm-hmm. I'm happy. I'm a disc jockey. I'm on a, you know, I have good ratings. The new program director comes in for a while and he goes, oh, I got to go back. I got to go back before this. While I'm there. As program director. As program director. I'm offered this television series. New television series, network series, NBC is going to be huge. It's mm-hmm. called The Midnight Special. Oh, yeah. So they hire me as the host. They give me a contract. Now, once I have the contract in my hand, I go to the, the, the manager of the station. I say, great news. Network television show. Oh, my God. He goes, you know, you got to think about where your butter is being bred. How, your, your, bread. how is your bread, bread is being buttered? Yeah, yeah. Either one, either one of these <laughs> <Yeah>. games is ridiculous. <laughs> he goes, who's, you know, who's paying the bills here? Are you in television or are you in radio? I went, but, but they go hand in hand. They promote each other. It would be great for the radio station. He said, I think you better think this through. So You didn't turn it down. I didn't... turned it down. Oh, my God. One day before they were to shoot, mm-hmm. I said, I have to turn it down. I had a young son. I was you know, young and married. I was in my early 20s, and I was scared. Yeah. So um, on the rebound, they hired Wolfman Jack that day, and then he went on to host the show for the next, what, 10 years or Right, and, and brought his career back. Yeah, so then, so now my station has blossomed, and I'm you know, really happy and successful, mm-hmm. but they're going to make me do this stuff, so I quit. So the new program director comes in, and uh, one day he calls me and he said, I'm going to have to let you go. I laughed. <laughs> That's funny. He goes, I'm serious. I go, um, why? I'm, I have good ratings. He goes, you're always walking around here smiling. I know you're cynical about what I'm doing. Went, Are you out of your mind? I'm the only one happy around here. I went back to school. I'm in school. I'm happy. I'm happy to have a job without a lot of responsibilities. I'm happy that you have the responsibilities I used to have and have to deal with those people. And he goes, and I talked to him for two hours. And at the end, he said, well, you know, I understand your position, but um, I'm going to have to uh, stick with my original decision. So then the accountant, Don, Don calls me in to get my severance check. And he looks at me across his desk and he goes, I hope you go out there and uh, in the next two weeks you spend all your money and in two weeks you don't know where your next penny is coming from. And then maybe you'll come to the meaning of life. I said, what's the meaning of life, Don? He goes, management is God. I went, oh my God, I feel sorry for you. It's true. They put the food in your mouth, the roof over your head. Management is God. He said, I feel really sorry for you, Don. Goodbye. And I walked out the door. Three weeks later, they hired me back for more money. <laughs> I can't account for that. And so then I'm, I'm there and I'm doing my stuff. And mm-hmm. that's when I was called by K-Rock to come over. They were a little AM station. And they said, we wanted to come over and program this and make it, you know, a, a rock station, mm-hmm. FM rock station. That's a whole other story. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, you're right. You you ruined me, and now you're gonna come back yeah, so you can show you, that you're number one. You, you break my heart. Yeah. You, you shred me. You insult me, and now you're. So when I when it came time to leave, the station, I you know didn't hesitate. Yeah. And and of course the guy, who's another con man, the guy who started K Rock, um, he offered me a, a brand new Porsche, to come out there. Yeah. So it was like more money than I'd ever made, and a Porsche, 
and the promise that when we got the FM station, I would program it into being this new rock station for uh-huh. Los Angeles. All of which happened, but not without real drama. With, they just teased the Porsche for a while? No, no, I had the Porsche. It was phenomenal. It was, it was uh, a 911, brand new, smelled great, mm-hmm. loved it. I was in love with this car. As the station was developing, it was this terrible little AM station, and he'd misspent a fortune, you know, hiring a, a staff of major personalities and paying them a lot of money, and uh, a fleet of Datsun 240Zs for the news department that were cruising the city. Wow. But it was a, 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 a station that couldn't be heard out of, outside of the San Fernando Valley. It was terrible. But they knew they were going to get an FM station right. sooner or later. And that was the promise for me. So I'm in there doing my little top 40 distracty thing and driving my Porsche. And one day there was a notice that Gary Bacosta, the guy who'd started it, had been fired. And that there were 13 partners. And the, the um, majority of the partners ostensibly got together and decided that he misspent money and he had to be overthrown. So they fired him. Wrong. They fired me. Oh. They fired the guys that he'd hired recently. And um, I called Gary and he said, oh, just sit tight. Now, Gary was Sicilian. So we sat tight. And um, some days later, we got the word that all of the people in the insurrection, in the coup, had been fired. Everyone, salespeople, uh, management people, air people. It was me and the couple guys that had been fired recently. Gary had was back in his office and there were vague threats. We were, you know, back on the air. There I was working again, but I had to be walked to my car by a six foot five highway patrolman with a shotgun. Because? Because there were threats, vague or otherwise, <laughs> that something awful might happen. Uh-huh. And so th- this went on for a period of time. Well, and then... Inexplicably, they got the FM signal. Mm-hmm. So he said, okay, now you're it. You know, promote it on the air. We're going to go FM. It'll be AM and FM, and we're going to take over this station in, um, in November. So I, you know, I did, and I designed the format, and I signed the station on the air and said, uh, you know, KPPC will now be KROQ FM and blah, 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 all this legal FCC stuff. And created the format and created the studio and all of this stuff, and it soared. It just, it was an explosion of creativity and got really popular. Everywhere you went in town, people were listening to K-Rock. And the money stopped coming. All of a sudden, we couldn't pay our bills, and then one night, my Porsche was repossessed by Burley (laughs) Chinaman in the dead of night. (laughs) And I was being driven from Topanga Canyon to Pasadena, by the music librarian in his Volkswagen every day. <laughs> kept going, kept going, because everybody was listening, everybody was listening. It was so exciting, it was so much fun. And everybody was going bankrupt, you know. They were living off credit cards, and and uh, finally I just couldn't take it anymore. And I quit. And the day I quit, the whole staff quit. Mm-hmm. They said, if you're out, I'm not doing this either. And so the whole station quit, and the and the... We are going to have the last show. My last show was going to be the biggest party of all time. It's going to be Flo and Eddie, a show I'd started with Mark Bowman and oh, Howard yeah. Kalen. And they were really funny and really charismatic, and it was going to be a big party with a whole bunch of stars and people that came 
to join me. And there we were in the afternoon having the last big show. And they shut the station off the air. They turned off the transmitter in the middle of the broadcast. Mm -hmm. We were there having fun, and the music was jamming, and everybody was listening, and went, went, wow, they shut the station off the air. And all the energy went out of the room, and people goes, what now? At that moment, a guy walks through the door, a guy hired by Gary to be the new manager. And he said, I want you to leave right now. I want you to get out. Gary didn't think that he could trust you on the air, that you might say something about him. I went, you'd better leave now, or I'm going to do something ugly. And he, and I towered over him. Okay, and he leaves, and I pack up my stuff and go up to my office and just cried. You know, it was just so hard. It's like, oh my God, I've worked so hard for this. And I um, started my production company on the heels of that, vowing never to go back into radio, but along came KMET and made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Well, it seems like it keeps coming back to you. <laughs> it was. Yeah. It's one tragedy after another. It's just sad. <laughs> what do you think it is about radio that, because you hear these other stories from other DJs that... Yeah, every everyone in radio has a horror story. Uh-huh. It, it's, a, it's very mysterious. Some of the biggest and most mysterious egos of all of the businesses in, that I've been in in entertainment mm-hmm. have been in radio. And maybe it's because, um, because it's invisible. Uh, yeah. There isn't anything tangible about radio. Uh-huh. And so you get in there and you get a little success... And then you go, I can do this. I can do this. And all <laughs> I have to do is keep doing decisions. this. I really know what I'm doing. Yeah. I really know what I'm doing. <laughs> no, I don't have time to return your calls. I know what I'm doing. And what's really funny about it is, and I've noticed this my whole career. I'm from Jamestown, North Dakota, a little tiny town in the middle of nowhere. But I noticed that people even, like in Bismarck, North Dakota, mm-hmm. doesn't matter if it's Bismarck, North Dakota on Y92 or... KMET in Los Angeles or WABC in New York. Something happens to people where they get entitled and they go, I'm important now. It's so crazy. And I can't return your calls. <laughs> I don't return calls. <laughs> yeah, there's a switch once you get the job. You know, you, yeah, you can't, uh, can't go back to it. Just real quick, but radio will wrap it up. What's the future of radio now with XM, with podcasts? With I don't even th- I don't think it's XM. I, I think it's entertainment on demand, mm-hmm. you know, like what you're doing, podcasts. I mean, people that care about things, creating original content. And it's they've made it so easy. Now, I, I told you I'm, I'm doing this podcast series myself that I think is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It's called Blackout Television, and there's an app for it. There's an iPhone app and an Android app. You just search for Blackout Television in the App Store, and it'll download right on your phone. It's like no-brainer. It's duh. Right. You're driving along in your car, you hit the button and play. And it's a uh, an all-black improv group. They're the funniest people I've seen in 10 years. They're always funny. They do a show at the Groundlings called The Black Version, where they do a, a the black version of a famous movie. So they did Psycho, and the black version was called Cray Cray. <laughs> and they, and uh, and, and it's always hilarious. I've seen it nine times, uh-huh. and I've, every time I've laughed with my jaws hurting I mean, when I, when I left the uh, theater. So I talked to them about doing this podcast series, and what it is is a, uh, a parody of a black entertainment network. 
uh, called Black Television Network, mm -hmm. BTN, and they have all kinds of television shows. So they do a morning show like Good Morning America, and it's called Morning Blackout, you know, television for black America who are up at this time. And they do a parody of The, of the View, which is called As Black Men, Black Men Talking About Stuff. Uh -huh. And uh, they do a Judge Judy parody called uh, Lady Justice with Judge Evangeline Cotter. And every one of them is hilarious, and they're all different ideas. Mm -hmm. And so we've been doing that for uh, four or five months now, and we've reached about 25,000 downloads. Not huge, but it's growing every week. And now we're shooting um, a pilot for a television to make it a television show. And God willing... Yes. It'll see the light of day. I don't know how it can miss. It's high concept, low budget. So. And you're a proven commodity. Yeah, pretty much. It's Larry Sanders meets uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. You know, it's improvisational, so there's not a staff of writers. Right. Um, you work from elaborate outlines, and, um, and it's behind the scenes of a television network. That's great. And, oh, you were on Larry Sanders. How, what was that experience like? One of the great experiences of all time. I loved Larry Sanders. I love all the guys. Um, Rip Torn was amazing. Gary Shandling was uh, brilliant. I, I, everything about it, all the people, it was a great experience for me personally. They were great to me. They were funny. And it's still one of my favorite shows of all time. Yeah, it was a great show. Was it weird playing yourself? Were you nervous about going in? No, God, no. Yeah. no. It was like, it was perfect. It's like, he's, uh, here's Hank telling me how to... <laughs> Kingsley. Kingsley. No, a little more B-flat. <laughs> Kingsley. <laughs> And it's one of the great episodes of all time, too, because Hank gets all caught up in himself. Now he's the host. Right. And, uh, you know, he gets smug and he gets entitled <laughs> like a radio guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, this is full circle. Well, thank you very much for doing the show. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, it was great. Terrific, thank you. Well, Shadow Stevens, and people can find you. Shadow, S-H-A-D-O-E dot com or blackouttelevision.com. Great, and you're also the, the announcer for the Late Late, the late, late, late show. show. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Proudly Resents. Make a comment or suggest a film at reachadam at mac.com or on our comment line. Ready? Get a pencil. <laughs> I'll wait. Okay, got one? Okay, 646-481-5476. Keep it clean and short. We might air it. Join us on Facebook or be old school and go to our website, proudlyresents.com. If you like the show, put the episode up on your Twitter, Facebook, stumble upon, dig, you know, all those things. Tell a friend, I'm Eddie Pepitone, and my Twitter account is at Eddie Pepitone. Adam, we're, we're out of time for this interview. Hey, uh, are you wearing a shirt right now? It's a personal question. Wearing a shirt right now, listening to you, listening to the show. How would you like it if I told you there's a place where you can buy the shirt without leaving your house? It's called the internet. I know. You can buy any kind of wacky t-shirt, cool t-shirt, low-key t-shirt. If you go to proudlyresents.com slash buy, B-U-Y, you can find out how you can get 10% off of most t-shirts and uh, any kind of t-shirts you want in the world. In the world. All right, back to the show. Later.